Welcome to Life at the Academy, a midshipman-produced podcast that examines how the culture, traditions, and daily life at Annapolis have evolved over time. I'm midshipman Nels Waranimi. And I'm midshipman Calvin Tran. Dr. Raghi earned his Bachelor's of Arts in Classics in 1974 at Amherst College, then taught for two years at Athens College, a school for Greek students. He also taught at St. Albans School in Washington, worked at the Brookings Institution, and earned his master's and doctorate at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. In 1980, he became assistant dean of the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He has published widely on ethics and American foreign policy. In 1991, he was a Pew faculty fellow at the Kennedy School of Government. In 1995, he spent a Fulbright year at the National University of Singapore and has written about that severely controlled society for the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Asian Wall Street Journal, and the Atlantic Monthly. He is the author of Immaculate Warfare on the Ethics of Precision-Guided Munitions and in 2019 published The Politics and Strategy of No-Fly Zones with Rutledge. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Raghi, sir, thank you very much for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Nelson. We'd like to begin by talking about what you studied at Amherst, which is classics. Why did you choose to study classics, and why is that still important? A discipline that began so many years ago, why is that still relevant today? Um, more than ever. And I chose Amherst, which is not the same as the Naval Academy. In fact, it's kind of the anti-Naval Academy, the anti-Annapolis. Um, it's a small liberal arts college. It was all boys in those days, which was awkward. That changed as, as soon as I graduated. Much better school now, although it was an excellent one when I went there. Also, I went there in the days of the Vietnam War, and the president of the uh, college actually got himself arrested during the first semester. He went and sat in the driveway to Chicopee Air Force Base as his way of stopping the bombing of Cambodia or something. At the time, I was studying ancient Greek and studying Thucydides particularly and his story of the grim war that went on for 30 years between Athens and Sparta made me much more of a realist, much more skeptical about a, a holy or a, uh, a moral foreign policy. I believe much more in morality and foreign policy now than I did then. Why Greek? First, I had a great Latin teacher, a great Latin teacher way back when I was in the seventh grade. That was in Huntsville, Alabama. That was where they built the Saturn rockets for the moon program. So a lot of my classmates had names like uh, Stepan Heimberg and Evelyn von Grau and uh, Margaret von, uh, von Braun. Uh, and they were all Germans who had been brought over, Nazis actually, brought over to be part of our space program. They built the V-2 rockets that had been showered on London in the war. Um, my teacher, my Latin teacher, Mrs. Highby, actually was a Nazi. She had uh, been a member of the party, and we could always distract her by getting her to talk about the day that she went to a rally and she heard Hitler speak. And she would describe that, and then she would break down, and she would cry, and that would be the end of Latin class. And then she'd run off to the women's room, and Mrs. Porter, from the English class next door, would have to go and comfort her. So we could put, like, the whole seventh grade out of operation, <laughs> which we did fairly regularly. I got more serious about Latin and Greek because when I looked back through history, there was one time when one town, not really any bigger than Annapolis, 
was engaged in a war on six fronts, all the way from the Black Sea to Sicily, and they were busily, while fighting the war, doing things like inventing philosophy. I'm talking about Socrates and Plato, inventing philosophy and practicing it at a higher level than ever since. And also Thucydides, a decommissioned general from that war, sat down and invented history, not only wrote a great history, but invented the very idea of historical writing. And their comrades in arms were people like Sophocles and Euripides, who were inventing tragedy and Aristophanes, inventing comedy, and what were they building? They were building the Parthenon, just an incredible efflorescence of human brilliance. I believe in my country very much, but I don't know that we've yet produced a building that captures America the way that the Parthenon captures democracy and Greek thought. Uh, in fact, if I try to think of what's the most American building I know, I'll pass on the Pentagon, although it's an option. I'll pass on the Mall of America outside of Minneapolis, although it's an option. So right near my hometown. Oh, is that so? Good, good. What's your hometown? Plymouth, Minnesota. Oh, very good, yeah. I spent a lot of time in Golden Valley. Oh, yeah, that's uh, right next door. Right north, yeah. exactly. No, I think the, probably the most American building would be Monticello. And uh, certainly Jefferson and Adams were great classicists. So that's why I chose classics. I really wanted to understand this brilliant town, which was so small, so intense, so productive, so much the source of civilization for the West, and uh, I never regretted it. Uh, I was delighted to find that I had the opportunity right out of college, just six weeks out of college, to go and teach at a school for Greek kids in Athens. And uh, I was one of four non-native speakers on the faculty uh, and with ancient Greek, and then I, I was kind of forced into a quarantine of odd sorts for about six weeks when I, when I arrived because uh, Greece had just undergone a revolution. A dictatorship of colonels, a junta that had ruled for seven years, had been driven out over the catastrophic war in Cyprus over the Turks. And so I was told by the deputy head of the school I should get out of town, that Americans were persona non grata, which we were because we had backed the dictatorship for seven years on the idea that, well, they hate communism, we hate communism, why can't we be friends? And uh, so I went off to the little island of Samothrace in the north of Greece and couldn't come back. The, there's a kind of a seasonal wind called the Meltemi, where just all the air off the Black Sea and the steppes pours up south through Greece. And it blew up some waves so that I just couldn't get back across the 30 miles or so of water. So I was there with nobody on the island, really, who spoke English. And uh, I got a good chance to learn my modern Greek. And when I went back to the school in Athens, and I asked after the deputy headmaster who had told me to, to get out of the city. This is like the deputy donch, you know, the guy who really ran the place. Uh, they said, Pios? Who is this guy? And I said, well, you know, and I used his name, which I won't hear. And they said, no, no, we don't know. And they pretended he had never existed. Of course he had existed. But what it was was he had been the junta's contact, and he had denounced a number of students and faculty members who had been arrested, imprisoned, and tortured. And so the response was just to pretend he didn't exist. And that's really what brought me to what I do today, trying to explain American foreign policy to skeptical audiences. Mm -hmm. 
and trying to find some sort of moral or ethical through line that makes sense of what we do. That's what I started doing in Athens in those days when I was teaching English to 12th graders who wanted to go to America for college. Professor, could you tell us about your Fulbright year at the National University of Singapore and what lessons did you learn from that, from that experience? Oh, that was a fantastic year. One of the great things about teaching at the Naval Academy and about academia in general is you get years off every seven years or more often. I have more often. So I went to Singapore because I hadn't gone there in the 1970s when so many Americans went as part of the war in Vietnam. I was a little too young, just by three years. And then I had been teaching about Asia and I had never been to Asia. And Singapore, for a political scientist, I mean, it's just brilliant. It's small, it's compact, it's astonishingly successful in so many respects. It's just the place to study, the way that anthropologists like to go to Bali, say, or Tahiti and study that society. I wanted to go to Singapore. I taught at the National University of Singapore. I had fantastic students, some of which still stay in touch, I'm glad to say. But I found that the head of the department was very oppressive. He was a member of parliament, a member of the People's Action Party that's ruled Singapore since the time of its independence in the late 50s until today. In fact, that small island nation, like Cuba, another small island nation, became independent in the same year and was ruled by the same family, the Lee family versus the Castro family. But uh, the parallels began to strike me because while I found the place absolutely brilliant in the transportation system, the housing system, I loved. The health care, fantastic. And the quality of life overall when it came to material things. I found that my students were afraid. My colleagues were very intimidated. Professor Kwa did all that he could to keep us on edge. I wasn't allowed to have a printer in my office. They wanted me to send everything that I typed over a local area network, the easier to intercept it. I was criticized for a lot of things by Prof. Kwa that he had no re way really of knowing unless he had been listening to conversations in my office. My phone was fixed repeatedly. My computer was just seized out of my office and a new one was brought in two days later. The surveillance was fairly ridiculous totally unnecessary, absolutely counterproductive. While I approved, <laughs> I was in awe of the Singaporean achievement. I never could figure out why the achievements in healthcare and housing required such total suppression of free speech. It happened that that year they made a case, an example, of a man by the name of Chi Sun Juan. Chi got himself elected from the Marine Parade District. He represented the Socialist Party. But almost as soon as he was elected, his department chair, also a member of parliament with the PAP, discovered, in quotes, that she had been cheating on his taxi um, receipts when he would do taxi rides across the island for research trips. And then they discovered that he had 
cheated by mailing his wife's dissertation to a publisher in the States and using the department funds to do it. When in fact, as it turned out, the same department chair had signed the chit authorizing the mailing. And there was really nothing wrong with his taxi receipts. They were just making a case of him. Instead, it turned into a case where he was found guilty of moral turpitude. He was denied his seat in Congress. The Marine Parade District was gerrymandered out of existence, and he was harried by personal lawsuits until, having lost his house and his job, he was rendered down to penury. And it was such an extreme and crazy overreaction to the election of a person who actually seemed to me he wasn't a good friend, but we'd had many conversations. Seemed to me a very sound and reasonable person. So that's what made me concerned about Singapore. While I was there, the London Economist wrote an article that was a little critical of Kishori Mabubani, who was their permanent secretary of foreign affairs. And he tended to give talks in which he would criticize the West for decadence in various forms. So they published an article called Scourge of the West, where they listed many of his criticisms. And uh, so I wrote a letter to the editor. Their articles in The Economist don't have bylines, but letters to the editor do. So I was very cautious, and about six weeks before I left the country, I was to leave on July 1st, I wrote this letter to the editor that said, the things that you quote from Permanent Secretary Mabubani are perfectly accurate, but those are the things he says in public fora and abroad. These are the things that he says for consumption in Singapore. And I quoted them, and they were accurate as well. And uh, they agreed, the economist agreed, that they would run the article, but they weren't going to run it until after July 1st, when I'd be out of the country. Unfortunately, somebody didn't make that very clear to the people who lay out the pages of the magazine. And so about June 16th, I came back from a trip to China. I'd been away for two weeks, and when I came back, one of my students had torn the page out of The Economist and put, under, put it under the door to my office, and uh, I knew I was in trouble. So when I found that, I'd come straight from the airport by chance. I went back to my apartment, and Singapore being Singapore, famed for its efficiency, I think I did exactly the right thing. I walked upstairs to a neighbor who was a pilot for South African Airlines, and I got him to stay up all night with me and help me pack up all my stuff and haul it upstairs and put it in his apartment so that he could later mail it to me in America. And in the morning of the next day, I went in, and sure enough, Prof. Kwa took me in to meet the ISA, the internal security agents who were there to question me. And they asked me if I had written this thing, and I said, well, yes, I did write that. And they wanted to know the circumstances on which I wrote it, and so I lied. And I said that I had written it with a pencil that I found in the gutter on an envelope that I pulled out of a trash can, and that I went across the causeway to Johor Bahru in Malaysia, and I phoned it in from a payphone there. And I was lying about everything there, and they knew that I was lying. But in Singapore, it's against the law to use government property to criticize the government, and that was the thing they were going to arrest me on in the first instance, I think. So I waited 
Not at all. After I had my interview with them, I took a taxi to the causeway to Johor Bahru, and I walked across and, and I got out. But uh, And later, my upstairs, upstairs neighbor mailed my stuff to me, actually to my neighbor next door, because I didn't want the Singaporeans to be able to read that it was my name and address and intercept my things. They kept uh, several... Th- maybe about $20,000 of my savings from that year. And uh, I had charges against me after that for contempt of court because they said that things that I said brought Singapore's courts into disrepute because I said they were politically controlled, which they absolutely are. I also published a piece very critical of Singapore in the Atlantic and another one in the Washington Post. And that has made me persona non grata for a while now in Singapore. Sir, you described Amherst as an anti-Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. So what made you, as someone who attended Amherst, want to teach at the Naval Academy? I was at Georgetown instead in the School of Foreign Service, and I was an assistant dean there. Assistant deans are like deputy dons. They do a lot of the most unpleasant stuff. I didn't really like having to tell people that they were going to have to take some time off or be expelled, that kind of thing. Also, uh, what happened that was the first instant, my father took early retirement at age 60, and uh, my mother uh, had had some problems with her health before, but in the very week that he took early retirement, he took it on January 1st, on January 4th, she passed away in her sleep. So it was a total shock, and his life emptied out from a wonderful 40-year career with General Electric and a great home life. They, were, they really had a wonderful marriage. And suddenly he had neither his work nor his home. And I was in Washington, as I mentioned. My brother was in Wilmington, Delaware. And so uh, after a little visit with Dad and my mother's funeral and so on, John and I could see that Dad couldn't stay up in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is where he had been living in the last uh, eight years of his career. And uh, uh, John and I thought, what's the best place for Dad halfway between Wilmington and Washington? Obviously, it was Annapolis. And Dad got into the spirit of it and bought a condo over in uh, Shearwater. It's out, uh, you go up Boucher Street to President Street, roughly. It's, it's on the south side of Spa Creek as you head out. And uh, he bought a 30-foot sailboat from a friend who was retiring to Arizona and couldn't use it. And he came down here to uh, Annapolis Sailing School and stayed in Gibson's Lodgings just outside Gate 1 and learned to sail. I'd sailed a bit before. My brother never had. But the three of us took the boat and sailed from Erie to Buffalo and then took the mast down and went through the Erie Canal. And then when we got to the Hudson, We put the mast up again, sailed south past West Point and all, and through New York Harbor, which was a trip, and then off the coast of New Jersey and up the Delaware River. It was 22 days in the boat together. It was a pretty big thing for Dad and John and me, and Dad sailed right past the academy here and then up Spa Creek to his new home where he lived for another uh, 18 very good years. Um, I didn't think he was going to be happy again, but there were two or three years there at the beginning when he first came to Annapolis when he was deeply, deeply unhappy. And that's when I left Georgetown and came here on an exchange. So a person from here came and took my job and I took his 
And then I went back to Georgetown, and then I came back here, and then back to Georgetown, and finally stayed here. And uh, I've been delighted with the choice. I've really found huge satisfaction in being part of this place. It may seem tentacled to you guys and give you too tight a hug all the time, <laughs> but to somebody who merely teaches here, you can feel, if you want to kid yourself, you can feel like a, a sojourner in the place, kind of like the medieval monks used to have this formula, that you were in this world but not of it. And I played that kind of nonsense for a long time until I realized I was just fooling myself. The Academy does kind of sweep you into its embrace, even if you resist. I wasn't all that resistant, I think. I was kidding myself and imagining. And now, as I look back, I'm so pleased to be part of an institution imperfect though it is, that does have a, a, a fairly strong embrace, or to switch the analogy, that puts a fairly strong imprint on a person. Um, and uh, I've, uh, I've always been very pleased to see my students come back, sometimes as colleagues, sometimes just back for reunions. This place does have a kind of a magnetic force. We just mentioned that Captain Herbert will be back this afternoon. It's very very nice, because really everyone I've ever known here seems to circulate back here with uh, pretty, pretty satisfying regularity. Sir, when you first came to the Academy to teach, what was your impression of the culture at the Academy and midshipmen as a whole? My very first impression was I arrived over at Gate 1 and needed to get to Nimitz Hall, where the political science department was over in the basement. And it's quite a walk across the campus, as I called it then, rather than the yard. So I asked him in, um, can you tell me how to get over to Nimitz? And we walked, and we talked about where he was from, and what he was studying, and how he liked the academy, and so on. So all the way, you know, up Captain's Row, and across, and Stribbling Walk, and all of that, and we're finally getting over to Nimitz, and I say, so what brings you over to this side of the campus? And he said, well, to bring you here, sir. I was so impressed that at Georgetown, they would have said, head that way, you can't miss it. But of course, I would have been 20 minutes late, I'm sure, for my, my appointment. So that was my huge first impression. Another impression that was much more negative came just a few months later when a guy who was a five-striper, so very, very high in the brigade, uh, came out as gay. And I don't think he came out voluntarily. I don't remember the exact circumstances. I think that, that he was caught in some sort of compromising situation. He was immediately taken into custody. Not that he had committed a crime. He was taken into custody to keep him safe. It was so that he wouldn't be beaten up. And that's, that surprised me. But it's so satisfying now to me to see that mids can be very open about their sexuality and expressive of it, not in any unprofessional ways, but without fear that they're going to create some sort of a backlash or that it could be prejudicial to their career. Some of the most successful recent graduates that I know, like Andrea Howard, is very open about her sexuality and has been tremendously successful in the Navy and is, is going to be a very good officer for the Navy as it continues to embrace diversity. Sir, how is that transition taking place in such a short period of time? Why is it taking place? So it's quickly? a miracle to me. I think the military is good at getting the idea that it has to change. There was an occasion when 
uh, General Colin Powell, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, came to give a talk. It was about the time of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And he gave a very disarming talk in which he spoke quite frankly. Now it's Alumni Hall. It was a huge event, but still he spoke quite personally. And I think that might have encouraged some of the midshipmen to be fairly candid in their questions. But one of them said, um, sir, this whole thing about don't ask, don't tell, I, I find that what those people do together is an abomination, and it, it violates my deepest religious beliefs, and I can't just look away and remain faithful to my religion. Sir, what do you think about that? And it's one thing, I think, for a mid to ask a question like that, but there's something about the tagline of what do you think about that. He's speaking to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff here, but I think he felt he had the wind at his back. I think that he felt that he really had the will of the brigade behind him, or at least that large portion of the brigade that was quite skeptical. Moreover, it was known that General Powell had counseled against, don't ask, don't tell, previous to that. And so when he asked, what do you think of that, General Powell allowed silence to stand for about six beats for a good long time. And then he just said, resign. And, sir, <laughs> resign. It's the law. You can't abide by the law. Don't be an officer. Resign. And, okay, everybody breathed deeply two or three times, and they said, you know, that's, that's true, it's the law. And even if you counseled against it as he did, it's the law. And I think that's one reason why the change came so quickly. The military can say it's a new, a new standard. And as an officer, you live by the standard and you uphold it for others. I think that's how it happens. I know that's over simple, but that's part of it. Yeah, that's a powerful story, sir. I'd like to ask, because you mentioned the academic restrictions you experienced in Singapore, and some people on the outside looking in might think that you might mm -hmm. experience some of those same restrictions mm -hmm. as an academic at the Naval Academy. Do you experience any of that? I got a lot more at Georgetown. Oh. I was teaching courses on morality of war, and I would have the Jesuits come into my classroom, which had a crucifix on the wall, and one of them said, um, I won't name him, but he was a very outspoken Jesuit, and Jesuits are not shy. I really like them for having real intellectual vigor and beautiful articulateness. But he just looked through my syllabus. I hadn't invited him in. And he said, I see a lot of Michael Walzer, and uh, I don't see any Thomas Aquinas. No St. Augustine in your class? I mean, he was revising my reading list in front of me. I've never gotten anything like that at, at all. And the academy has encouraged me, in some cases for summer study, uh, paid me to write case studies which are explicitly critical of the Navy, of the Army. You may have used a Rockwood case study about a Captain Rockwood in Haiti who uh, uh, goes AWOL to inspect the National Penitentiary. Very critical of the military. I wrote that and got nothing but approval. Uh, another one. I'm about to release is about the Fat Leonard bribery scandal. That does not make the Navy look good. But when I published things that were critical of Singapore, the 
uh, ambassador from Singapore to the United States, a man by the name of Tommy Koh, a very informal, very likable person, a great friendly face of Singapore to the world, came out from Washington to the superintendent's office. At that time, that was Superintendent Charles Larson, the man who was our only four-star superintendent. He had been a superintendent as a two-star, and then he went off and became commander-in-chief in the Pacific. And then he came back after an electrical engineering bribery scandal in the 90s. And uh, he had known Ambassador Coe well from his work in the Pacific, this sink pack. And Ambassador Coe explained to him that he had a rogue faculty member and that he really needed to discipline this person because there was even potential for these baseless criticisms to damage the U.S. Navy's relationship with Singapore, which is a crucial relationship. We bring in carriers into Simbalang. And uh, Ambassador Coe said his piece, and Admiral Larson listened to him respectfully, and then he picked up the phone and asked if he could come by my office. And I said, sir, I can be in your office in a minute. He said, no, I feel like a walk. And he came down and very kind of jokingly and disarmingly knocked on my door and said, permission to come aboard? Yes, sir. And um, he said that he had been called on by Ambassador Coe, and he said he gave me the opportunity to explain about academic freedom and more than academic freedom, about free speech and about the First Amendment and about the Bill of Rights, which weren't surprises to him, but always are good to review, and especially with a Singaporean was what... Uh, Admiral Larson was implying. And he said, Steve, you're doing your job. We want you to write these things. We want you to teach these things. You're an American, and you are being a good representative of America in Singapore. Get your facts straight, and do not let anyone dissuade you. And I almost choke up, as I think about it today, as an academic guy, to have the head of your institution say that. You can't ask for more than that. I don't think that would have happened at Georgetown. I think that Father Healy, who was the head of the university at the time, would have responded very badly if I had done anything that brought Georgetown crosswise of a leader in Latin America, for example, where the church is so important. Dr. Raghi, what is your opinion on whether or not military officers should vote in elections? I talk about that to the guy who has his office next to me, Lieutenant Colonel Childress from West Point, who I think is a superb officer. I really love a lot of the stuff that he's done at the academy, including the Socratic Society and getting some of the uh, academics involved in teaching at uh, Jessup at the prison. Um, officers should vote. There is a kind of a monastic image of the officer as a figure who is so of both politics that would never vote. I believe that officers should be paying attention, and you pay attention in part by forcing yourself to make choices over candidates. I believe officers should also be paying attention to other things, however, like how the districts in Maryland are being gerrymandered to favor Democrats. This district that we're in is one of the worst examples of gerrymandering in the country. I do believe the Democrats have been losing ground and Republicans have been much more effective in tilting what should be a level, level playing field into one that favors Republicans. But I don't really believe in, well, I'd call it the fantasy of an entirely apolitical military where officers don't even vote. 
they might imagine themselves then to be somehow immaculate in their apolitical status. I don't believe in that. I feel people should not pretend to be immaculate. They should just strive to be very responsible, very attentive, very cautious. Sir, I think that we could talk to you for another hour, but I'm afraid that our time is coming to an end. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. I heard you describe life at the Naval Academy and compare that to being like a batter in a batter's box. Could oh, you yeah. Just, could you tell us about that? For sure, for sure. I've worked with the UK scholarship program, and I've been fascinated to see mids who somehow manage to do everything around here and do it with near perfection when it comes to grade point. And so I've asked habitually, what is it that helps you earn this unbroken string of A's? And one answer was, well, you've got to recognize that coming to the Naval Academy is like being locked in one of those practice cages that you see at the mini miniature golf places. You're locked in for four years, and they won't turn off the pitching machine. It just keeps firing stuff at you. You've got to do another practice parade. I'm very conscious that you're missing a practice parade. I feel very bad about that. You've always got some new next military requirement, and you don't have to turn every ball into a home run. You just have to connect with everyone ceaselessly, indefatigably, reliably. But relentlessly. And this place is pretty relentless. It's a place for the, I'm afraid, enforcement of conformity. There is a relentless enforcement of conformity. And not that the officers and the senior enlisted are so tireless in it. It's actually midshipmen who tend to enforce gently, sometimes imperceptibly, often unconsciously, enforce conformity on each other. That's not the way to get an education. An education is not everyone making everyone as much like everyone else as possible. Education's about individuation. It's about making you as much unlike everyone else and more intensely like your own unique individual self. That's what education is. It's individuation. This place is a magnificent training facility. It trains you. It raises you to a very high common denominator but this place, much of the time, works as a standardization institution, a training institution, raising you to that high common denominator. I've always felt my purpose here was to be a little bit gently subversive. I got to talk to Admiral Larson about this, and he agreed strongly that you can't have officers who are all like each other. You couldn't back decades ago, but now we have officers we have, we have special operations young officers who call in airstrikes. It used to be the job of senior colonels to call in airstrikes. We have people given phenomenal responsibilities, so they had better have resourcefulness, flexibility, adaptability. That only comes to an individual. The person who's just been trained up isn't flexible. They're compliant. It's different. And so... I would say this place is a little bit like being locked into a batting cage, but it's also a place where you get to develop yourself in astonishing ways. It's, it's just amazing what, what people come out of here. And for me, one of the great things is they stay in touch and they, they come back and it's, it's just tremendously rewarding to look back on. I'm gonna boast for a second that 
I've worked now for 20 years with the UK scholarship program, and I've seen a lot of people win Rhodes or Marshall. Many more people win Fulbrights and other scholarships, which are also phenomenal, but just the Rhodes and the Marshall to choose the ones that are so hard to get, only 32 Rhodes in a year across the country when there are two million graduates every year and only 32 to be one. But during the time that I've been doing it for 20 years, we've run 143 Rhodes and Marshalls, and out of proportion to our, our size. But um, other schools do very well in the Rhodes competition, like Cornell, a really formidable university, does very well. And so does Columbia, and particularly well, better than either one, is Berkeley. But when I got on the Rhodes website recently and counted, the Naval Academy has gotten more than Cornell, and more than Berkeley, and more than Columbia, but exactly the same number of Rhodes as Cornell plus Berkeley plus Columbia. So it's a really talented and accomplished group of people. So I, I have a real affection and admiration for the midshipmen. I'm very proud to be part of this place. Well, sir, this has been a wonderful discussion. We can't thank you enough for spending the time with us this afternoon. What a great pleasure it's been. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. This concludes our interview with Professor Rogge about his views on how culture at the Naval Academy has evolved over time and his perspective on civil-military relations. We want to thank Professor Rogge for being so generous with his time and for sharing with us his perspective and experience. This has been the Machipman Produced Podcast, Life at the Academy, recording from the Naval Academy's Samson Hall in Annapolis, Maryland. On behalf of the USNA History Department and our midshipmen hosts and producers, thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time.